0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, the Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Uh, Joining me on the podcast today is the dramaturg Davina Moss. Davina is the literary manager at the Hampstead Theatre in London. Prior to that, she worked at the Public Theatre in New York and in the New Works Department at the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse. As a freelance dramaturg, her most recent projects include the first production of The Merchant of Venice in the Venetian ghetto with Italian-American theatre collective Campania di Colombari. She holds an MFA in dramaturgy and dramatic criticism from the Yale School of Drama. Um, I'm still here in my bedroom talking to interesting people and hoping that you'll find those conversations interesting as well. So without any further ado, here's Davina. Hello Davina, thank you so much for joining us on the Amplify podcast, uh, on Nottingham Playhouse's Amplify podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, I'm all right. I mean, we're all locked in our houses, which is pretty weird, but apart from that, all good.
0: It is pretty weird. Uh, today, especially, I'm I'm starting to feel the full effects of it now, I think. It's really set in that this is going to be it for quite some time. Uh, and I'm looking at the walls thinking, oh, God, I wish I lived somewhere different. Um, of course I don't. Uh, I, re- I, I, I really like my house. I've just never spent quite so much time in it. How are you spending your time in social distancing? What does it look like for you?
1: So... The theatre is still keeping us employed and going. We're still sort of powering ahead with our programming and our working. We're just not making any plays right now. So from my perspective, social distancing and isolation doesn't actually mean that. Different to what it means in my day-to-day life, because I have an office where I sit and read in the theatre, and now I sit and read in my house. But yeah, not much has changed. I am trying to run things like a writer's programme on Zoom, we are all learning about Zoom. It is our new best friend.
0: Zoom is our new best friend as well. Um, there's been lots of Zooming. Uh, it's going pretty well, actually. I like it. I am um, uh, I find, actually, it's slightly easier to have conversations on Zoom sometimes. It's, uh, I don't know if it's just sort of being relaxed in your own environment, or perhaps, you know, wearing pyjamas on your bottom half most of the time that does it.
1: I'm much more nervous about Zoom. I think it's because I don't like watching my own face when I talk.
0: Well, well don't look. <laughs>
1: You have much more self control than I do. <laughs>
0: um, fair enough. So, why don't you tell us um, a little bit about your work as the literary manager of Hampstead Theatre and what that means?
1: So, Hampstead Theatre is um, our new writing theatre based in Swiss Cottage in London. And I say our, like it's the only one. There are other new writing theatres, but we are a new writing theatre, which means that we are programming primarily and almost exclusively new work by contemporary writers across the globe always in English, mainly British, but not exclusively. Um, So my job is to go out and find those plays. And the way it works essentially is there are two ways to get your play into the theatre and in front of me. One is through our unsolicited script submission window. um, Window, it's all year round. And one is through a solicited script submission process. So unsolicited scripts are for people who don't have agents, don't know the theatre, have just kind of written a play in their own bedroom usually um and want us to read it and that comes through a sort of email address called scripts at hampsteadtheatre.com send me your script and uh gets read by a group of um script readers who are directors dramaturgs uh literary readers from all kinds of backgrounds um who read those plays and if they are um think they find potential in a play that would be suitable for Hampstead they send them through to me and I read them so there's that strand, and then the other strand is through um, solicited script submissions. So people who have agents, people who know directors or whatever, and think that they have a play that's suitable for Hampstead can get it through to me. That way, in those plays, I tend to read myself, or I have a resident assistant director at the theatre who also uh, reads with me. So a lot of my time is just spent reading. I also manage contracting and uh, royalties and that kind of thing for writers. I also run our writers' program, which is a thing called Inspire. Um, What else do I do? I spend a lot of time meeting writers, sometimes meeting directors, talking to people about their plays. And obviously with um, plays that we are working on actively, I spend quite a lot of time reading drafts and giving notes and talking to writers about how to kind of get them ready for the stage. Um, And that might come through a commissioned script. And that might just be a script that we pick up through one of those um, uh, streams and then decide needs sort of to be developed and grown and made better. Um, I have a bit of a thesis that no play is ever finished. You know, Hamlet is a kind of two drafts away from being done. Um, so just because we pick up a play and think it's good for production doesn't necessarily mean that it's ready and finished, and doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to keep working on it.
0: Uh, and what is it that you're uh, that you're looking for in a play? If uh, if I'm if I'm going to send you my play, what things should I be thinking about? So.
1: I always say that I'm looking for a combination of skill and idea, but I am really, really weighted towards idea. So, like, I'm a kind of interested in the word talent and what talent means because you know, with talented equestrian and a talented writer, we use the same word, but they're doing pretty different things.
0: And I think did you just go with equestrian then. I did. Interesting choice. Don't judge me. Um, I, I not, me. Not, It's fine as you like, but I mean, it, it's just not. It's not the reference I would have expected. Anyway, you carry on. <laughs> so um, these two
1: people doing very impressive things, both being called talented, feels a bit random. And I think with with writers, what we mean is originality. I think we mean, do you have something to say? And does it make me think about the world in a way I didn't think about the world before? That doesn't mean you have to, like there is no brand new idea, but do you have a spin on the world that's interesting? And like, do you have something fresh? And I think that's what I'm 90% looking for, because I can work with someone on structure, on characterization. I, can, I can't 100% work with you on dialogue. If you really can't write dialogue, it's really hard to teach. But, you know, style, construction of a play, all of that we can work on. But if there's no kernel of something really fascinating in there, it's really hard to, I can't teach you how to have a good idea.
0: Can you just tell me uh, a little bit more about what you mean and give an example of skill and idea, uh, and perhaps a very specific example of something you've worked on uh, uh, thinking about those two things?
1: So we produced a play called Unknown Rivers that was by one called Chinanya Adimba. And it was a really interesting idea because it was about um, what it is to be young and black and female in a world that doesn't like you. And I read the play the first time and sat there and went, Chino's really figured out something about that experience or not figured out but expressed something about that experience that I had never seen expressed in that way. And I also think my audience will never have seen expressed in that way. But the play was rough. It was very much a first draft. It was quite kind of convoluted and it had um, some structural issues. I hope that Chino wouldn't be offended by me saying that. I think she would say the same thing. And so we sat down and we talked about what the through line of the play was and what the focus was. And she had this image that kept going through the play of water. And eventually we came to the conclusion that this play needed to be more about water. So what had been a play about two, three, sorry, three girls going on a shopping trip became a play about three women walking to a swimming pool. And it's quite a, a um, substantial change. Like it is, wasn't the entirety of the plot got rewritten and, all the action changed and when I said to people in Q&A's after that show the first draft of this play did not have a swimming pool in it they all sat there and went but the whole play is about a swimming pool everything we talk about is about going swimming so it was a great idea but it was about how we express the idea in the right form and sometimes form is about you know how you make the play and how you do the storytelling and sometimes form is simply about what happens in the play
0: uh, that's great. So tell us uh tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from, Davina?
1: I am uh, born and bred Londoner.
0: Uh excellent. And is there uh do you come from you come from an arts family? What do you what do your folks do?
1: My folks uh was, my dad's sort of corporate and my mum was in but is still in public health. Uh she was a doctor in National Public Health, uh which at this point is very useful. She knows all about technology. Yes. Um so there was busy. no art exactly there was um, no art in my family whatsoever none of them knew anything about um making or creating theatre but my parents are quite keen theatre goers my mum particularly my mum and I both started going to theatre a lot from a young age and when we were little kids they sort of did what good middle class parents do and take their kids to the circus and the zoo and the museum and the theatre and kind of try us out and everything and all kids I mean you know this, you've got kids kind of hook on to different things and get excited about different things and my mum was saying to me that from a very young age live performance I just lit up and I've just always been kind of obsessed and I think the reason I think I got into this part of the industry and this part of making is that I didn't start theatre as an actor or as a director or as a theatre maker not really I started as an audience member I was a really really committed and keen audience member I went to the theatre from when I was about 15 till now, you know, three or four times a month, and now three or four times a week. And I think I realised when I was about 13, 14, that because there were schemes, do you remember these schemes, like Night Less Ordinary and Entry Pass, where you could go to a yeah, the theatre yeah, for like absolutely. a fiver, if you were under 18, RIP yeah. those schemes. But it was cheaper than the cinema. Mm-hmm. And I became obsessed. I I wasn't, didn't have a lot of friends, let's be honest to uh, um, and I suddenly went, God, you can go to the theatre a lot and it's brilliant and it's endless. And my mum particularly was excited that I was, you know, not taking a lot of drugs and um, sleeping around. So was thrilled. I find to a lot. So I was thrilled to, like, fund the habit and also support me. So she would say, like, you've got to go see this play. It's part of your hinterland. You know? Oh, there's a Joe Orton on. You've never heard of him yet, but, like, you've got to see a bit of Joe Orton. You've got to see look back in anger if it's ever on, et cetera, et cetera. And so I became quite sort of theatre literate from a relatively young age just because
0: I lived in London and I could. And um, do you remember, is there a standout moment where you decided, uh, yeah, this is going to be the life for me? This will be the job. This will be how I make my living or how I try to.
1: There are two moments. One is um, His Dark Materials at the National when I was a kid. I just sat there and went. This theatre is and can be, and it's magical. And the other moment isn't actually a, a performance. It's that when I went to university, I have a sort of shameful history as a theatre reviewer, um, mm-hmm. and I did like a few terms of theatre reviewing and hated it because I was miserable. Everyone around me was miserable. They all hated me, and I was just bitching after the fact. And I said to a teacher at one point, like. There must be a world in which you have these conversations before the play has happened, rather than just telling people afterwards, well, I would have done it this way. And she said, like, have you ever heard of a dramaturg? And I went, no. And pretty much came from there. I pretty much went home and Googled how to be a dramaturg and spent a night reading about this magical person I could become. And that's pretty much how it all happened.
0: And so, uh, having having discovered the wonderful world of dramaturgy, how um, because I'm I'm assuming you uh you didn't just decide to be a dramaturg and then announce that you were one. What were the What were the next steps on no, your path? I, of I being didn't a just dramaturg. announce
1: I was one. Though you I think do. some people do do that, which I think is an impressive level of confidence. Um, I so when I googled how to be a dramaturg, the first thing that comes up is the Yale School of Drama's Department of Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism, which is a very long title. And Mm -hmm. I looked up this master's program um, that's attached to this drama school that's attached to Yale University and just sat there and went, I have to do this. This is too cool. And it was, you know, studying theory of theatre. It was studying history of theatre. It was practical work in rehearsal rooms with directors and actors and all of this. And I was so excited by it. And so I secretly, without telling anybody, because it was too shameful to admit that I had this dream, wrote these applications and sent them off and Magically got in, which was not expected at all. So I then spent three years doing this um, MFA program in America that was very, very intense and very, very exciting. But the thing it gave me, apart from like theatre literacy, apart from um, sort of knowing m- literally more knowledge, was that confidence to call myself a dramaturg and feel that I wasn't just testing myself on playwrights. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the difficulty with if you want to be a dramaturg and you can't get training. And I get that training is complicated, time consuming, expensive. But would it would the problem with starting as a dramaturg without any experience is that you might make your mistakes on quote-unquote real writers. Yeah. So we would do note sessions with dead writers at Yale. That was like one of the exercises we would do. We would try and... Do oh, brilliant. On, do, you
0: remember, do you remember any of yours?
1: Um, so <laughs> some were on plays that you've never heard of by very obscure playwrights, which is one of the reasons they were not very good. We did one on... Um, we did some Shakespeare ones. We definitely d- did Hamlet. Um, why is why are there pirates in Hamlet? Yeah. Like, why are there? Um, there We did some stuff to do with um, a Zoriel Hurston play called Spunk. That's a very strange um, African-American drama. Um, I can't... Oh, no, I can't remember all of them. But they were... It was really educative and we would do them on each other as well we would pretend that we'd written these plays we brought in and we'd have to defend them as writers and people would come at us with notes and a it's really useful because you learn about the experience of being the writer but also you don't you don't make the mistake of hurting someone's feelings or offending someone or doing the thing that i think every drama is scared of which is like breaking someone's play
0: yeah absolutely um but i mean you you raise an interesting point there about um why are there pirates in Hamlet? Uh, I don't want to talk about why there are pirates in, uh, pirates in Hamlet. Um, but what I do want to talk about is um, the idea of uh, dramaturg and dramaturgy and how it's a uh, it's a sticky word and can attach itself to lots of def- definitions. And because of that, uh, it can be quite nebulous and mysterious and a bit scary. So I wonder if uh, you can... Uh, Uh, Well, I think you've articulated brilliantly that actually it isn't always about these, uh, the grand questions of structure and character, theatricality, theme. Sometimes being a dramaturg isn't just asking a writer a simple question like, why are there pirates here? Um, But on training, obviously. Not everyone can go to Yale right now. No one can go to Yale. But if I wanted to, in this time of self isolation and social distancing, sit in uh, my living room and think a bit more about dramaturgy and learn a bit more about it, are there are there any uh, resources or book that you would recommend to have a glance at?
1: So I suppose the first thing I would say is read as much as you humanly can. It, it not sorry, that sounds stupid. Read as many plays as you humanly can, because the best way to learn about plays and play structure and how sort of drama quote-unquote works is just to read lots and lots of plays and it's, it's interesting actually um this is a bit of a tangent but one of the things I think people often say to me when they who are writers is like I'm so glad I've met a dramatope because I'm really bad at structure and structure is the thing I'm really scared of and I know how to write dialogue but I'm really bad at like structuring my play and can you solve it because you're a dramaturg so you understand structure and like yes I can sit you down and show you an Aristotelian curve But like my secret shame forever was that I didn't know anything about structure and I thought I was bad at structure and people would come to me and say, like, can you structure for me? And I'd kind of have no idea. And what I've kind of come to the conclusion of is that actually there is no overarching way of solving structure. Every play has and needs a different structure. And the more plays you read, the more you'll realise that every play needs and works within a different structural framework. And I think that's the thing about the form and content thing about working yeah. out what the best way to tell your story is. Um, in terms of sort of educational resources, there are um, some good ones. So there's a thing called um, EF's Visit to a Small Planet, you might have heard of, that's an essay by Eleanor Hughes, which is about looking at a play as if it's a planet. And it's just, like, it's a very simple essay. It's a very, a very smart essay because it simply says, think about all these other aspects of a play you haven't just thought of before you start thinking about people. You know, think about what kind of world the play is set in. And that can be really helpful. There's also, this is really random, but I should give a shout out to it. There's a book called The, Poetics and Poet- the Politics and Poetics of Contemporary English Tragedy that is just solidly the best book I've ever read about contemporary English writing and looks at loads of great plays from the last 10 years.
0: As give us tragedy. that title again. The
1: Politics and Poetics of Contemporary English Tragedy. I'm going to find out it. And who
0: wrote
1: this? Sean Carney.
0: Uh, Sean Carney the politics and poetics of contemporary British tragedy
1: English tragedy uh, and it looks at people um, like Sarah Kane it looks at David Hare it looks at Mark Ravenhill and Karen Churchill It looks at Jez Butterworth it, I'm reading this from somewhere I've not remembered this all perfectly but it was I read it for a final exam and it it still sticks with me that book it was such a fantastic academic study of these plays but in a not very academic very accessible way that made me think about you know, we have this idea that tragedy sort of started with the Greeks and died with Arthur Miller. And it looks really beautifully at how tragedy and the form of tragedy continues to this day.
0: And well, that sound, uh, sounds like a fascinating read and certainly something I'll be looking into uh, while uh, while I'm at home. Uh, and so uh, what happens after you, uh, so you have a brilliant time at Yale and you feel and you leave and you feel, feel like a dramaturg, feel equipped to call yourself a dramaturg, confident enough to do so. Uh, then what happens?
1: So then I did what everyone who goes to Yale does, which is move to New York uh, with no money and no plan. And I quote-unquote freelanced for about seven or eight months, which was not terrible in that I had a couple of projects that um, I had lined up before. Mainly I got through either teachers or colleagues I'd met at Yale um, because they all moved down to New York together and then they all have to make work together. And I managed to keep body and soul together, pay my rent. That was fine. I did some quite interesting... Different stuff. I was working on a project um, with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, who were doing these very controversial, quote unquote, translations of Shakespeare plays. That was a really interesting, really unusual project. Um, and then I got a text one day from a woman called genie O'Hare, who used to work at the Public Theater and previously was teaching playwriting at Yale. And she essentially said, "My assistant has left, and no one has contacted. No one knows how to manage my email. Can you help me?" So. Um, I went and worked at the public for what was supposed to be like three weeks and ended up being about four months. Um, at which point about I was applying for jobs elsewhere at the same time. I think like one of the things I would say in a sort of self-deprecating way, but also hopefully to give advice to other people is I came out of Yale being told that I could get any job and I was, you know, the shining star. And, you know, I was going to be the industry manager at wherever and I was set up and I applied for some jobs that boy, was I underqualified for. And, I think this is the story is meant to go and I got one and look how magical it was but like I didn't I didn't get anything I got no interviews for like six months and no one would talk to me and I was quite arrogant about the whole thing and I I remember once I applied for a job at Milwaukee Rep and was saying to my friend like I don't know if I want to move to Milwaukee and she's like they haven't even interviewed you yet so like calm down darling Um, and I think I just I tell that story because I think it's worth noting that not everybody, everybody's life looks like they jumped neatly from lily pad to lily pad. But actually, there are at least three points in my professional career where I've applied for more than 50 jobs I've not got an interview for. And I don't want this conversation to make it sound like it all went really smoothly, because I, I think people who it's not going smoothly for right now might get damn by that. Um, but anyway, while I was at uh, the public, I applied for a job at the Liverpool Every Man in Playhouse with yourself and uh did a rather shaky skype interview, but I did manage to get the job and came back to the u k and uh did this three day a week in liverpool um in New in which was a pretty interesting place i think you'll agree because um they had no money, but they had a lot of ambition
0: uh yeah we uh we had no money um but we did have a lot of ambition and we were uh we were producing uh, producing new plays because there was the Permanent rep company there at the time. Well, semi permanent there for six months of every year, uh, and so there was. I mean, there was actual dramaturgy to do, and of course, yeah. there was the playwrights program and the young writers program. Um, so there was a lot of there were a lot of writers around and writers to talk to and work with.
1: Yeah, there was a lot going on, and it was a really exciting place and a really like stimulating place in terms of talking to people who wanted to make work in their local community. Um, which was something that, having been at The Public, I hadn't really seen because The Public, I suppose, a bit like a lot of this in London, was a bit of a hub for national and international work and there was not such a sense of locality about it. No one said, like, I'm from Lafayette Street, I'm going to write a play about Lafayette Street. But in Liverpool, people were very proudly from Liverpool, wanted to write Liverpool-based work and that was really, really cool. Um, But I was also commuting three days a week up and down from London and I was very tired. And eventually this job at Hamster came up and I did apply for it and I did get it. And then that ends the story.
0: You are playing it fast and loose with the word eventually there. I think uh you were my colleague for six months before eight you ran away eight at Hampstead. Eight, was it eight? Um Don't leave me oh gosh, it, went, it went so quick. Um time flies when you're having fun. Absolutely. Um but uh yeah, you did uh you did get the uh the job at Hampstead, the job of literary coordinator, is that right?
1: Literary officer. Um, literary I officer of I
0: actually and, then, for. and then so brilliant were you at this job that you were promoted within three days to the literary manager is that right this
1: is a very nice way of explaining what was quite a simple situation which is that i think they'd, they'd appointed me as a literary officer and then a couple of days in they started getting emails from agents saying so when are you hiring a literary manager so who should i be talking to and the, i think that the producers were saying Oh god! If we don't call her literary manager, no one's going to talk to her, and then we're going to have to deal with all the contracts. Um, so they changed my title. Um, I like you know,
0: to call that a promotion. It, uh, well, it, it definitely is a promotion, and a, and a well de, and a well deserved one too. Um, and uh, so, tell us a bit about um, the, uh, the 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 life cycle of a of a play at Hampstead. We've touched on it briefly before, um, but say you have, uh, let's say you haven't commissioned a play. Let's say you've encountered a play. That um, you think uh, Hampstead might want to produce? What's the process from the point of you discovering the play to it being on the stage in Swiss Cottage?
1: So it can really vary. So there are plays that I love that I have managed to get um, Roxana or previously Ed, who are our assistant director, um, to read very quickly. And they, you know, with the Haystack that we just closed um, just before this lockdown. uh, I read Al's play on a Wednesday, Roxana read it on Thursday, we'd programmed it on Friday. Like it was very very sudden and it was partly because it was in such fantastic shape that I ran to her office and said, "You have to read this now." And she did. And there are other plays that I have said to her, you know, this is really interesting, but it might need more work and that takes a little bit longer because she's got more of that stuff to read. Um mm-hmm. But so the first thing that happens is I have to get Roxana to read it because nothing that we program is going to happen without an artistic director reading it, and I think every literary manager would say the same thing. Um, I have a bit of a mantra that literary managers don't don't say yes to anyone; they just turn everyone down because the artistic director gets to make the call that says yes to people. I get to make the call that says no to people. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. But
1: in terms of uh, you talking about the cycle of a play, so we once we have agreed between myself, Roxana, our executive producer our writer-in-residence, a few other people who might be in the conversation that we like and are excited about the play, we will get the writer in and meet them. And uh, we'll really talk to them about where the play came from, how they feel about it, and probably where we think it should be going next. Like I said, most plays are not finished. Most plays are not ready to be staged when I read them, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the potential to be amazing plays. And if the writer is excited about Hampstead, if they're excited about the work we want to do with it then we'll offer them a license. Hamster works on pretty long, uh, pretty short timeframes. We are relatively late at programming compared to many other theatres. So when I was at The Public, they programmed like five years in advance or something terrifying for Shakespeare in the Park. Whereas um, we have been known to program things three or four months before they go on. Um, Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's a year or so, but often we program things pretty short term. And um, I think you once said to me, "If you give a writer a year to do work, they'll do work. And if you give them three weeks to do work, they'll do the same work."
0: Um, well, I didn't. I didn't quite say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what, what I said was that uh, we'll we'll stretch the work out to the time that is that's allowed to it. Uh, and I do think that uh, our commissioning process uh, in the UK in general, uh, with what sounds like the exception of Hampstead, is is a little bit broken in that um, they're just uh i think we give it we do give it too much time uh and that makes it really difficult for uh writers to make a living and it also uh it makes it really difficult to write the play that is right for right now as opposed to trying to craft a masterpiece uh and i think cuz we do you know we work in a uh here today gone tomorrow art form that uh those plays that are right for right now might be passing us by because of the current model that is used in the majority of our theaters
1: Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. And I do think that work expands to fill the space you give it. Um, And it doesn't, you know, there have been times I have felt that I'm pushing a writer to write too many drafts too quickly. But it's relatively rare. I often agree with you. I often think that I'm giving a writer too long to flail around without focusing because they're sitting there going, well, I've got six months and I I can't start writing yet because then I haven't done my research and I haven't like done my plotting and my structuring and all of that and actually it might be better to just like power out a first draft and we can it's much easier to redraft from something than to start with the blank page
0: uh, i'm i'm particularly fond of the judd apatow term for it which is the vomit draft
1: yeah yeah i've heard of um, the vomit draft
0: yeah i uh i enjoy i enjoy that a lot sorry do pick up on uh you were talking about the process of producing a player
1: oh god what did i get to so once we have a um, production date in mind, obviously we'll do the, the license and we'll do the contract and all of that. And we will set a sort of schedule for it, how many or how much drafting we think needs to be done um, so that the writer feels that they know kind of where they're pointing to and what's going to happen in the meantime. And then we start looking for a creative team. So we we will match a writer and a director up. And sometimes that's by... They say there's someone they want to work with, or we find someone who we think that's suitable to work with. Or sometimes we find a few people and set them up on some sort of writer director dates and they find the right chemistry. And then usually the director will be involved in finding designers, etc. and casting.
0: And then, yeah, we do the plan. Um, great. And can you just um, talk a little bit more about your, uh, your writer's programme? What do you say? It's called Ignite? Inspire.
1: So we have run for a couple of years, a young writers program called Inspire, which has four writers who were mentored by Roy Williams to write a full length draft of a play with Hampstead in mind. Um, And they were sort of mentored and inspired by a whole series of exciting uh, artists in the field, particularly writers, but also directors, artistic directors, designers, etc. And they were aged between 18 and 25. And we are expanding that program um, quite significantly to be for writers of all ages. But I can't talk too much about it because it'll all be announced shortly, but it's going to be very exciting. We also um, have, uh, like I said, our open submissions window, which is for any writer. And then we have a sort of bespoke getting to know you program, which is really how much if I read a play that I'm excited about, I'll invite the writer in for a conversation. and. I always say to people, you don't get one email and one conversation. It's not that once you've met me, I will never speak to you again or I'll forget who you are. It's that that's the start of a relationship. And those people basically get my email address and can send me work directly and I'll keep in dialogue with them and they might um, we might work on another one of their shows or I might come and see their work. I, I'm out scouting pretty much every night. And just getting to know emerging writers' work is 95% of what I'm doing. Um, I also run Writers' Nights, so if I know a writer, they can come and see Hampton Theatre plays for free, basically because I started to meet a lot of writers who were like, I've never been to Hampton Theatre, or I've never seen a Hampton Theatre mainstay show, and I'd be like, well, then you're never going to write one. Mm -hmm. So we started this programme where we invite our writers in. Um, I think other theatres do it, but some theatres do it just for writers who they've commissioned or writers they're working with. We try to do it with writers who we're actively engaged in developing.
0: Uh, So uh, you're going to continue your open submissions policy and reading lots of plays uh, throughout the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So uh, people should send you their plays, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a great time to write a play. Uh,
0: Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. And uh, a question I'm asking uh, everyone on these conversations is what was the last piece of art that blew your mind? Parasite. Parasite. Interesting. Tell me why.
1: So, oh, it's so good. So it, it's a, it's probably the last piece of art I've seen because I, haven't, I hadn't been to the theatre since I saw it and then obviously they all got locked down. Um, and it was just beautiful because it's this gorgeous three-act structure, really, really well constructed, but not in a sort of, not in a heavy-handed way. I thought the way it used humour was so clever because it sort of edges towards being laugh-out-loud funny, but never quite is because it's so bleak.
0: I thought. Oh, do you think I laughed so much at Parasite? I, I thought it was super funny. <laughs> I, I did. I thought it was. I thought it was really funny. I agree with all the things you're saying about it, but I also thought it was super funny.
1: Oh, I, I found it so chilling. I couldn't laugh, but I kept wanting to. And I think that was for me this amazing knife edge that it kept you on. Um, I thought the performances were amazing. I thought that lead guy. I mean, completely out of this world. And I also felt that it, in a way that is quite hard to pull off it's stretched reality and yet com- completely credible at all for all but one moment i have one note for the guy who wrote parasite which is you know the bit where um he says we got off with a warning you know the mother and the son
0: and oh yeah like, yeah
1: no you didn't <laughs> even in this world no you didn't
0: um, um but i love it, it it is it is a really interesting thing to about uh, to sorry. It is a really interesting thing to think about in conjunction with that Eleanor Fuchs essay that you mentioned earlier, which I would not have read if you hadn't introduced me to it. So thank you very much for that. Um, but in terms of world building and a uh, the place where your story takes place, feeling very complete. Yeah. Um, absolutely, even, absolutely. even though yeah, what's happening in Parasite is just a little bit beyond the reach of reality. Um, yeah, I think that was a particularly just sort of pitch perfect example of that agreed and my final question uh, for you is uh recommend something that i can enjoy while i'm uh social distancing uh, you mean apart from the politics and politics of contemporary english tragedy uh oh yeah i mean yeah but i'll rattle through that so i need something <coughs> else this is going to go on for ages it's going to go on for ages um oh. so i'm only a season and a half in but i love the marvelous mrs madele Tomorrow, Mrs. Maisel, which is about, for for those people that don't know. Oh, right. Not everyone's watched it. What are you
1: talking about? Um, So it's about like a Jewish housewife in 1950s New York who becomes a stand-up comedian. And it's the most Jewish thing I've ever seen in like the best way ever because it really takes the mick out of the whole trope, but also made me feel very seen.
0: Made you feel very what? Seen. Ah, excellent! (laughs) Um, Good stuff. Well, I uh, I will definitely add that to my list. Um, Thank you very much for uh, taking part in the podcast today, Davina. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, Pleasure. And uh, good luck reading all the plays. And um, we will uh, speak to you very soon. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify Podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.